Hello everyone and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen and with me are... Devinder Hardaway. Jeff Kanata. And joining us today, he's the editor-in-chief at SlashFilm.com, Peter Serretta. Welcome back to the Slash Filmcast. Peter, how are you doing today? I am doing great, Dave, because yesterday, <laughs> Finding Dory overtook Batman vs. Or, or in, uh, yeah, uh, Civil War to be the number one film of the summer. Wasting no time. We wasting no yeah, time. Yeah, I was going to ease into it, but yeah, sure, fine. If you want to just open with that, that's great. Uh, yeah, Finding Dory uh, overtook Captain America Civil War, and uh, that is nuts. Peter that is Serretta. Like Babe Ruth, pointed, <laughs> pointed at the back of the of the uh, ballpark, and called his shot. And here he is hitting the home run. I was in last place at, at, at the current standings, and this change single handedly put me in first place at forty six points, with the nearest tied uh, two people at thirty two. It's a nine-point swing. Yeah, nine. Po- actually, eighteen-point swing, right? Because you, lo- we all yeah. lost nine points and you gained nine points, so it's an eighteen-point <laughs> swing. Yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, I should point out, da- we all mocked. <laughs> I should point out, by the way, David Chen on the charts dead last right now. <laughs> I, am, I am at twenty-five <laughs> points guy? compared to that forty-six points. Well, so, so yeah. well, d- d- Dave, welcome to where I was the rest of the summer. <laughs> yes, the all first right. half of the summer. Although so, you have competition, Peter, from uh, Secret Life of Pets, one hundred million dollar opening. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Maybe that's going to beat Finding Dory. Not. <laughs> um, so uh, it, for those I, who want I, to... I think they'll end up much higher than we put it. Though. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For those okay, who want to follow point. along, uh, we have a chart that upgrade uh, updates every week at thesummermoviewager.com. dot uh, com. There's also a Twitter account, uh, twitter dot com slash summoview, uh, or you can just Google. You know, Twitter or Summer Movie Wager, and there's someone uh, who's there, Dennis, who's been doing a great job of providing uh, almost <laughs> sometimes daily updates as to what's going on with it. So uh, for those who want to do some smack talk on the Twitters with us, uh, that's a good way to follow along and, and uh, get excited about this year's Summer Movie Wager. Uh, but if you're just tuning into this podcast for the first time, find more episodes of this show at SlashFilmCast.com. Email us at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. Uh, we got a bunch of emails this week about Swiss Army Man, and I want to talk about those emails, and we'll try to do that in the After Dark today, uh, where we can spoil it safely. Today, what we're going to be doing is discussing what we've been watching. Uh, Peter just saw Ghostbusters. He's going to be talking about the new Ghostbusters remake. Uh, I saw Batman v Superman Ultimate Edition. We'll be uh, recounting my experience with that. And then uh, I think we're going to be diving shortly after that into our review of The Neon Demon. Uh, so that's exciting because it's the newest film by Nicholas Winding Refn, which he reminded us of constantly in the opening credits with that watermark. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's so, just NWR now, Dave. Just it's a, NWR. It's NWR. It's Let's like, not gloss too much over Peter's accomplishment here because <laughs> honestly – I no, seriously. I want to give him his due because uh, – not only did none of us see this coming except Peter. Yeah. Not only is it. Oh, I, I didn't even see it coming. I put it out <laughs> as a like well, a possible chance. Well, the 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 balls that it took to to do this first of all to sort of go against the grain and 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 stand out like that and based on a a 
evidence, a, a, a sea of evidence that that shows that no Pixar movie has really ever done this. You know, uh, it, it seemed highly unlikely, and yet it turned out to be true. Uh, the juggernaut that is Finding Dory two, uh, and you know, it doesn't mean that he won outright. The the, the, sh- the show is not over. The game is not over. But an eighteen point swing is going to be a massive advantage, and I don't know how we would we can can overcome that kind of. Well, I, I mean, I am still up. I am still uh, banking on Ice Age, whatever the hell the new one is, uh, coming in <laughs> at too. number ten. Coming in at number ten. Uh, oh, in, in number three, I yeah, think. I know I'm, that's that is a, a catastrophic decision, Jeff. But I, uh, <laughs> I understand that now. Coming in at number ten, uh, I think uh, that's gonna really swing it for me. Also, uh, to be fair, five of the movies that I chose for my top ten have not come out yet. So once they do, uh, my twenty-five points is probably gonna be looking a lot more like twenty-nine points, guys. <laughs> so. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. But yes, uh, not only did Peter choose this uh, as his number one, Finding Dory, but uh, endured weeks and weeks of ruthless mockery by all of us uh, that it would end up being number one. And now he's having the last laugh. So good job, Peter. Bravo. Bravo. Uh, all right. On that note, uh, let's talk about what we've been watching this week. Peter, you just came from the Ghostbusters World premiere last night in Los Angeles, uh, and as of 10 a.m. on Sunday, July 10th, you are allowed to talk about it, right? Uh, actually, before we continue, I should point out uh, a word on scheduling. Uh, I think there's been some confusion about when episodes come out of the Slash Filmcast. We try to get them out by Tuesday night of every week. Uh, pretty much any Tuesday, you can expect a new episode by that time. Sometimes we will get them out earlier if we can. Uh, but count on Tuesday night as the day. Sorry if it gets confusing sometimes. Anyway, Peter, by the time people are listening to this, you will be able to talk about it. So I, I guess first talk briefly about what was the uh, feeling like you know, in the uh, premiere? Well, Dave, I'm not sure if you've ever been to a premiere. Actually, you have. I have. You, yeah. Um, it, it, it's a very different audience. I yeah. mean, you, you walk down that red carpet, and um, at least for the – you know. The Ghostbusters premiere, they had like a huge recreation of the firehouse. They had Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. They had, you know, a green slime uh, carpet going, you know, into the Chinese theater. And um, it's a really exciting thing. And, you know, you're there with the stars and the filmmakers and other, you know, Tony Hawk is there and like all these other, like, you know, just fans of weird, you know, people you wouldn't expect to be there are there, but like people you're like, oh, I know that guy, you know, that character actor is there and whatever. Um, and, uh, and a lot of people that made the movie. Or there. Right. So, so, you so know, the them- atmosphere is electric. It's predisposed to make you want to like the film pretty yes. much. It's one of those things where, you know, every name that comes up on the screen before the movie, you know, there's a ton of people that clap for it. And I'm not just talking about, you know, actor names, but like, you know, names Tony of Hawk. production companies. <laughs> Tony <laughs> Todd. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, it, and people are laughing at every joke like they should. It's like it's probably the perfect – uh, viewing environment for any movie, I would say, uh, that has you predisposed to like the movie. Yeah. Um, and I should note that, you know, I'm a big Ghostbusters fan. I wouldn't consider myself a fanatic like, um, Ethan Anderton on my site, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I wear a Ghostbusters t shirt. I, you know, I have some toys that are around the, the house. Um, 
And I've been excited about this movie ever since they announced it. Uh, you know, Paul Feig is, you know, I, I love him as a comedy director. I, my quote is on the poster for Bridesmaids, like mm. the poster that was in theaters for Bridesmaids. You know, I, I love that movie. Um, and I, I love Melissa McCarthy and I love Kristen Wiig. And, you know, and all these fans for like all the sexist hatred towards the movie. I, w- I was so ha- happy for them to be proven wrong with this movie when it came out that that quote by the way bridesmaids reaches levels of hilarity and heart that movies like these haven't reached in over a decade peter serena slash film so uh yeah you are a legit fan of this guy and uh what did you think of the film um (laughs) it hurts you know i should say it's hard to judge this movie as its own thing. Oh man. Okay. No, no, wait, this sounds, this sounds no, bad. Wait. This sounds no, bad from the guy who loved Transformers: <laughs> Age of Extinction. So yeah, I'm, re- I, I'm I, feeling. I no, but it is hard to judge this as its own movie. It's hard to judge this like on its own. You have to judge right. it against the original. And I think as its own movie, it might be a serviceable comedy. It might be an okay comedy. Like there's some jokes that you will laugh and you'll have a fun time, maybe. <laughs> oh, uh, no. Wow. But as a Ghostbusters movie, I was so disappointed, guys. I was, like, extremely disappointed. Like, you know, I I mean, I know you can see this from the trailer, but the tone of this movie is totally unlike the original movie. It's it's totally... It's much, you know, goof, it's much goofier? It's goofier. It's almost slapstick at time. Um, Kate... Uh, Kate McKinnon? McKinnon is, like, doing, like, weird faces at every shot she's in. Like, even when she's in, like, the background of a shot, she's, like, doing these, like, weird muggy faces. Like, I don't know if she's, like, trying to make little kids laugh or... I don't know. I, you know, I don't watch SNL. I, people love her. I, I This she's is my awesome. first experience yeah, with her. I, 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 she's I, fantastic, yeah. I really just didn't get it. Um, and there's, like, you know, defecation jokes and fart humor and it's just um you know none of the ghostbusters seem to be taking this seriously and i i know in the original ghostbusters you had bill murray who's always you know um kind of distant like kind of like mocking the movie he's in um sarcastically but nobody in this movie seemed to be taking it seriously they they all seem to be having fun (laughs) and there's some funny jokes you know, you know, jokes about Chinese food and stuff, and you're like, but why is the joke about Chinese food in this Ghostbusters movie? And um, to be fair, I mean, Ghostbusters, the original films, also had some pretty awful. Represents they? the last of the petty cash. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's when they're eating Chinese food. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Sl- eat, eat slowly, yeah. chew your food. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned that, um, <clears throat> Jeff. Uh, uh, yeah. The original movie is so iconic in so many ways, from the looks of everything to, to you can name probably. I think if I told you, Dave, who probably aren't even like the biggest fan of Ghostbusters, to name ten quotes from Ghostbusters, you probably could. Like it's it's one of those movies that like this movie has nothing that I feel like is going to be iconic um, about it. Um, the jokes are just kind of like I mean, it's like a joke from a you know just. An average comedy that comes out. And um, you know what disappointed me, Dave? And I, I know you'll probably talk about this in the full review. Is, you know, Leslie Jones' character who's like, you know, the only real person of color in the film. Uh, plays this outspoken, you know, uh, from the street, lower class MBTA worker. Who somehow joins the crew 
despite being the only one that's not a scientist of the group. And it's just like, <laughs> we, we've, we should have, you know, this movie should be more progressive, you know, being an all female team and being, you know, 2016, it should be more progressive than Ernie Hudson's character in the original movie. And in Chris mm-hmm. Hemsworth, uh, as you saw in the trailers and stuff, and this is not spoiling anything, plays a ditzy, underqualified, incompetent secretary uh, who's only hired for his model quality good looks and well it seems I, I, like the shoe is on the other foot peter no, no it, it, it is on the other foot but i feel like if this was switched if this the gender of this was switched and now he his role was that, that is the joke though like is is he held funny in that role because that's the point of it right yeah but the thing is that's the joke Devendra. I get that. I get that. But like, it's not saying anything about that. It's doing right, right, right. what it what what the film with it being a female would do. It doesn't do anything more with it in my mind. And um, I do want to say that the special effects were great. The uh, the new uh, technology is fun. And uh, you know, if I was a fan of this and was a cosplayer, I would love to get you know build all those new gadgets and stuff. And um, here's what breaks my heart about this, Peter, is. Yeah. All of us that were like, wait until you see the movie, don't judge it early, don't be a dick, like, like don't – all of those people now are like, <laughs> I told you so. That is, that is that is the worst. I, I should say though, I know other people that like this movie and didn't love the movie. But like this – Angie Han's review will be on the site by the time this publishes and she liked this movie. Um it's not a bad movie. It's just not a good Ghostbusters. It's, it's also well, kind of problem, like it, yeah. it was fighting a losing battle, right? Because the original Ghostbusters, that script is pretty much perfect, right? You have the chemistry of that cast. How do you recreate or even compete against something like that? Like that? Even they couldn't do it with their own sequel. Right. That's a very good point. They couldn't do it with their own sequel. But but then then you go, well, why remake this then? You know, why do a mm-hmm. reboot? Mm-hmm. All, everybody had been clamoring for so long to do a sequel sequel and it's like you can still do a sequel with ladies mm-hmm. it can still be an awesome interesting ghostbusters 3 with ladies or it doesn't even have to be called ghostbusters 3 but the idea that this is picking up in a universe oh, where the first movies existed yeah you on that note the, the title you, right yeah go ahead yeah and you know the weirdest thing we'll get to the title the weirdest thing is there's so many reference like they you think with an all eight ladies team and this new tone they'd want to do their own thing but there's so many references to the original film you know there's the fire there's all the stuff you've seen in the trailers there's cameos from almost every single person in the previous fil- films there's like well, there's, there's, literally, there's, there's literally, if you were a little kid being brought, like they're they're kind of like promoting this as like you know this is the new Ghostbusters for a new generation, you know, it's a relaunch. If you brought a little kid to this movie, they wouldn't get half the jokes because half the jokes are referenced in the original film. Hmm. And um, and I, one last thing I wanted to say is there's a human villain in this film, which I won't speak too far into, but it's literally just the mustache twirling, you know, I want to <laughs> destroy the world. Villain like it like has no motives other than that, and it's. I understand that you need a human personification of the bad guy, but it's just um, I don't know. I feel like we're going backwards rather than going forwards. So, uh, what about the title? There was some speculation that this new one might be called Ghostbusters Answer the Call, but what was the title that came up on the screen in the theater? I think at the beginning of the film, it just said Ghostbusters, but at the end of the film, um, it says Ghostbusters Answer the Call. Huh. On the screen. Interesting. 
So uh, it's, I guess I guess it's a way of trying to distinguish this film from the previous films, right? Is is yes. what I would think. Uh, well, Peter, it sounds like you didn't have the greatest experience. I think the new quote on this film is going to be a serviceable comedy. Peter Serretta slash film dot com. <laughs> uh, question mark. It's a question mark at the end. <laughs> serviceable comedy. Yeah. Question yeah. mark. I, 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 I hope you guys liked it more than I did, and I, I should say stay after the credits. There's something there. Um, okay, cool. So we'll do that. Uh, but yeah, that's Ghostbusters, and we will have a full review of this film next week. Uh, so looking forward. Well, to you that. have lowered my expectations, and maybe <laughs> that will be a good thing. Speaking of lowered expectations, let's talk about Batman v Superman Ultimate Edition. Actually, before we get to that, I want to mention a film that's out in theaters uh, this week. It's called Hunt for the Wilder People. Uh, it's the newest film by, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Taika Waititi? Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, and he's the guy who directed Eagle vs. Shark. He directed What We Do in the Shadows. Very funny film. He's uh, directing the next Thor film. Yeah. Which, uh, after you watch Hunt for the Wilder People, there is some like action-y elements to this film that would give you a sense of why he might have been chosen for that film. Uh, anyway, I'll read the plot summary of Hunt for the Wilder People from IMDb. Uh, a national manhunt is ordered for a rebellious kid and his foster uncle who go missing in the wild New Zealand bush. Uh, and I really love this film, guys. Uh, I mean, this is uh, this is everything I wanted it to be in mm-hmm. the sense that it was very touching. It was funny. Uh, and you got to see Sam Neill act like a really old grumpy man. Yes. And, uh, you I know, if, see that. if that sounds like something you want to see, trust me, it lives up to what you hope. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, everything about this, like if you watch a trailer, uh, you get a really good sense of what this movie's like. And if it, you know the movie delivers on the premise of the trailer, um, there's some parts of it that are unexpectedly really moving. There's a lot of funny elements to it, uh, and the movie looks great. It's very beautifully shot in New Zealand, uh, and so yeah, I really liked it. It's called Hunt for the Wilder People. It's out in theaters right now. Um, so check it out, guys. Uh, I think it's probably going to end up in one of my top ten of the year. So I uh, really liked it. All right. Uh, Peter Serretta, you and I have seen Batman v Superman Ultimate Edition. We talked about this a couple <laughs> weeks ago on the podcast. Uh, 30 new minutes of footage added to Batman v Superman Ultimate Edition. Uh, and yeah. I'm going to start with the good stuff, as usual. And, and it should be mentioned, Dave, I, I wrote a big article on this on Slashfilm.com about uh, why can't Zack Snyder release his director cuts theatrically. Yeah. That this was his original theatrical cut, and Warner Brothers basically made him cut it down to what was released in theaters. Right. So this isn't like a. This isn't you know, like a it, just extended edition for the sake of being extended. Yeah. Edition, this isn't right? like let's just throw all the deleted scenes in there. This isn't you know. Although sometimes uh, it does so, feel like that, but yes. Hmm. <laughs> okay, right. go, go on, Dave. All right, so you can buy this movie right now. It's twenty dollars video on demand. The Blu-ray is twenty-five dollars. I'm sure it'll lower in price later on. Let's start with the good stuff, uh, because in almost any filmmaking enterprise, uh, we can find good things. Uh, and so here's what I'll say about Batman v Superman Ultimate Edition that I liked. Number one, if you are intent on watching Batman v Superman, like if, if in your mind you haven't seen it yet and you think to yourself, I must see this movie, then I would say you should actually watch this version. Uh, because I think this version is in many ways superior to the version that we saw in theaters. So... If you haven't seen it and you want to see it, then you should go see this version. Uh, but conversely, if you haven't seen it or you've seen it and you think the original is bad, I don't think this version will redeem it for you. <laughs> I don't think the Ultimate Edition will make you say, yeah. say, oh, wow, this movie's great. How could I not have seen it before? Uh, so 
you know that that part is uh, what's good is that like this is kind of the definitive version of the film, and so you should check it out first if you haven't seen it. Second if thing, you I thought was, it was bad. You say now I've spent <laughs> three more hours. Yes, that's, now that is more exactly bad. that is exactly correct. Yeah. Uh, the second thing I'll say about it is just we, as, we, we should mention, Dave, that I, I I text messaged with you yesterday, and we were trying to schedule a time for this, and I was like, I could do it today, and you're like, I'm only an hour and a half in. It took me <laughs> and another hour and a half. To see it, I was like, Dave, do you even want to continue this? And you were like, no. <laughs> uh, I'll explain why it's later. It's a marathon, not a sprint, Dave. I, I tweeted this out. I did a sort of series of t- a tweet storm about Batman v Superman Ultimate Edition. And one of our listeners tweeted back, uh, I'm, I'm on day four of watching this, and I still can't get the heart to finish it. <laughs> it is like an endurance. Like Some people don't watch it all in one sitting, basically. And it can kind of be a, a slog. The second thing I'll say that's interesting about this is purely from a filmmaking standpoint, uh, if you are interested in the craft of filmmaking and editing, it is interesting to see the changes that they made. Because as Peter said, it is not just longer versions of existing scenes. It is they rearranged elements in the film uh, and uh, made certain arcs significantly different. And it's fascinating to see how they did it. Um, so I'll just give you one example, and I'm just going to say spoilers for Batman v Superman, a theatrical and ultimate edition in, in well, what we're going to talk about. Right? Dave, I think it's actually the opposite, right? If this was the original cut, it's not that they, you know, oh, right. that, that they restored these arcs. It's that it's it's interesting to see how they butchered those arcs yeah, in order yeah, yeah. to cut so, it down yeah. to half an hour. So in, in our original review, we complained about how uh, there was a lot of just really bad editing like transitions from scene to scene uh, a lot of those problems are solved in this version uh as an example in our review i said there's a scene where perry white says hey where is clark kent all the time does he just like tap his uh, toe like heels three times and he's back in kansas and then it cut to completely other random scene that doesn't have any relation to that uh that situation is actually resolved in in the film like the the transition between that scene and where clark Kent actually is uh, makes a lot more sense you know yeah. so a lot of basic editing flaws have been resolved in in the ultimate edition um but yeah you're right jeff you know the original version does flow a lot better and then they had to cut things up uh to make it all fit into two and a half hours i'll just give you one example in one of the earlier scenes in the film clark kent uh, watches uh, he, he's shirtless. Uh, it's one of the scenes he's shirtless in the film, so that's how you can remember it. He's in his kitchen and he's watching television, and they're explaining the whole Bat Brand situation on television. In the Ultimate Edition, that is not what is on television. It is a completely different character on television, and ha- that character has their own arc in the Ultimate Edition. And then Clark Kent finds out about the Bat Brand in an entirely separate way. Uh, and so I was just fascinated by how they were able to cram all the plot into two and a half hours that they wanted to for the theatrical edition. So purely from like learning about the art of editing and how you might reduce something down for a theatrical cut, it is kind of interesting as its own sort of cultural artifact. So th- those are the good elements, you know, what I got out of watching Batman v Superman Ultimate Edition. Other than that, I'm going to ex- just describe briefly my experience of watching it, which is that after the Ultimate Edition came out, I saw a lot of great reviews online saying, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. You know, Scott Mendelson wrote a, wrote a review about this is the movie that should have been released. Um, I watched Collider Video review 
the Ultimate Edition saying, and I quote the words, night and day difference. Night and day difference in the film, <laughs> right? And I, I thought to myself, wow, like this Maybe must be. Maybe they meant night with the K. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is a dram- this must be a dramatic improvement. Uh, and I watched the film, and I think there's a difference. So one of the big complaints was that uh, Lex Luthor's plan makes no sense in the original. And one of the things I heard, you know, from the Ultimate Edition is, oh my gosh, his plan makes so much more sense now. There is a difference between. Explaining more elements of the plan <laughs> and the plan actually making sense. <laughs> and uh, the plan is certainly explained a lot better. Uh, so as an example, things that are explained better. Why did people blame Superman for all the deaths in Africa, in Nairobi, Africa, in the opening scene? In the theatrical cut, this makes absolutely zero sense because most of those people were killed with bullets, experimental bullets, mind you. Uh, and... Why would people think that Superman was responsible for shooting people? Superman doesn't use guns. Uh, that is actually explained in this in the Ultimate Edition as to why people might think Superman was responsible. Uh, the person testifying in Congress actually gets their own arc, and you find out that Lex Luthor put her up to it, put her up to lying about Superman's involvement. Uh, and so the idea that Lex Luthor generated this resentment in Batman, all that is given much better explanation in the Ultimate Cut. Um, By the way, she's not even in the theatrical cut. I think she's in there for one scene, uh, in the scene where she testifies in Congress for like okay, well she's she's thirty seconds. Yeah, she's a big character. She's a a major character in the Ultimate Edition. Um, Also, Lois Lane is given more to do in the Ultimate Edition. Uh, There's actually a reason why she's tracking down this bullet and you know where it comes from. Uh, So those are kind of plot lines that are given a little bit more uh, flesh to them. You know, there's a more uh, stuff going on there, and and the whole Bat Brand thing, by the way, that's also really interesting, is attributed to Lex Luthor. Uh, he's the one. Lex Luthor is the one arranging for people with a Bat Brand to get killed in prison, so that uh, Superman will get all upset that Batman is, uh, you know, taking away people's civil liberties by by condemning them to death and so on. Uh, so all all this stuff is explained a lot better, and uh, I, I will say it still is a ridiculously complex plan uh that has a lot of holes in it like for instance why doesn't superman just tell batman what the plan is when he shows up in in, uh, gotham you know during the fight and then everything in the last hour is virtually identical i mean there's a little more funeral scenes and so on but everything in the last hour the action uh it's a little bit more r-rated there's a little bit a few extra shots but everything in the last hour which you know is one of the biggest problems of the movie is that the whole Martha stuff, the whole why are they even fighting in the first place, that's all still there and completely intact. Yeah. So from- there's, there's also that added scene that was released the Monday after the film came out in theaters of uh, Lex Luthor um, uh, seeing Inter- that vision. Yeah, yeah. he's interacting with uh, like Darkseid's lieutenant or whatever, Darkseid's yeah. general. Uh, Ste- and- Steppenwolf. Step- Steppenwolf, that's right, yeah. Uh, and there is more implication given to the idea that uh, Dark Side is on his way and maybe was in some way controlling Lex Luthor's actions, uh, which you know we all know was one of the biggest problems of the original was that they didn't make that explicit enough. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. Uh, so I guess th- I'm saying all this stuff to just let you guys know what some of the differences were. Uh, and if that stuff interests you, then certainly check it out. But I found it to be a colossal waste of time and a huge disappointment 
in the sense that it doesn't solve for me any of the fundamental problems of the film. Uh, and so I, I would say don't watch the Ultimate Edition because it is just the same thing except longer and answers questions that no one was asking uh, from the theatrical cut. Peter, do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, Peter, what do you think? I, I, I don't think that's completely true, Dave. I, I don't think you want to see this movie if, if you think that this is going to uh, rectify all your problems with the theatrical right. theatrical cut. This is not going to do it. it but, like most most of my criticisms of the, the theatrical cut are still there. Yep. Um, the pacing of this is a lot better for me, even I though agree, it, it's a lot longer. Um, it just you you. You get the motivations of a lot of the character, uh, more of the motivations of a lot of the characters, and I know that doesn't make Lex Luthor's convoluted plan any less convoluted, but I at least understood what he was going for. I understood what the Africa thing was all about. Like, in the theatrical cut, I was just confused. Um, by the way, they introduce um, Jimmy Olsen. Uh, yeah, they, which, they identify him by name in uh, in the Ultimate Edition. Yeah, which you, you you would be surprised at how much, you know, just a quick introduction before that character gets killed affects <laughs> – no, it affects that scene. Like the tone of that scene and the, the you know um, – it, 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 it's funny how – Yeah, it change. makes you feel so much more sad now than you did before, <laughs> which is really what this movie needed more. Well, no, no, not sad, but you just like – when he's introduced, I would assume if I had seen this movie for the first time, I would assume, oh, it's a new character for this movie. And the fact that he gets killed like within a minute is like so shocking and jarring. And you're like, <laughs> any what can you know? It, it, the stakes are just like amplified. I feel like. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. I, th- I mean, I think you're right, but I think. Uh... One of the complaints of of the theatrical cut is it's so dark. It takes these characters and and changes them into forms Dave, that are unrecognizable. Yeah, Dave, this, this is not gonna this is not gonna address any of those complaints. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think I think if you liked the original, if you're one of the few people that liked the original, that you will actually uh, enjoy this one significantly more. Um, so my, my thing though is, Dave, is I wish. You know, seeing this movie in the theater might not have made me like the movie that much more, but it's a better movie. And I think you even you agree it's a better totally, movie. Totally, totally. And it, it, it sucks that we get a neutered version for the theatrical cut that, you know, makes us more confused. And this isn't just a problem with this film. This is a problem with a lot of Zack Snyder's films. They get neutered yeah. and then he gets to release a director's cut on home video. Sucker punch as well, yeah. Sucker Punch, uh, Watchmen, um, and Watchmen, from what I understand, was because uh, the, you know they cut out the whole Night Owl uh, ending. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to spoil stuff, uh, um, and that's a big sequence. And the reason why it was cut is apparently because the, that um, extra 20 minutes couldn't cu- couldn't fit on the IMAX reel. The reel for IMAX is like <laughs> Max is out at a certain, uh, uh, you know, it's a huge platter. I'm not sure if you've ever seen that IMAX film. And um, basically, you can only do two and a half hours in IMAX. Mm. Um, I think for Avatar, they uh, 
they they actually created these uh, rig like these like uh, like like yeah custom custom almost like vices that you yeah. add to the end of the thing so you could fit a couple more minutes mm-hmm. of film. Um, anyways, uh, so I don't know what the justification of doing this is uh, on the weekend. I guess with a two and a half hour cut, you can fit one more screening. Is that why Warner Brothers wanted it? Um, it, it didn't seem like they wanted it shorter because it would have been better a better movie shorter. It seems like. Yeah, some other reason. No, I, I agree. Uh, but th- I mean, this is an R-rated cut. It, there's a lot of blood in it. it the action which, is more. Brutal. By the way, yeah. I know every, I know I'm going to get a lot of hate as I always <laughs> do when talking about this movie. But there's no universe in which you should have a movie that has both Superman and Batman in the title and is rated R, or that has even <laughs> a potential of being rated R. It's just it's, it's, so, cool, it's just so dumb. <laughs> so cool. Well, okay. So the, here's here's I, I, here's what I, I keep. Say, I will say I will say this though. The the R at least from what people are saying online. Yeah, there is a little bit more blood, but it's not like much. It's basically just one alternate um, line where someone uses the F word. Um, why? What? what are you? What are you talking why? about? Pe- no, 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 no. Peter is completely wrong. Like factually incorrect here. Really? Yeah. The, the uh, for instance, the final uh, fight with Batman is much more brutal in the Ultimate Edition. Uh, there's, like, as an example... It is uh, more brutal, but you really think that that would have been R? Yeah, well, there's a scene where he throws a guy into a wall using a box, and then the guy leaves... The guy's head leaves a blood streak as he falls down the wall. <laughs> and, like, that, I don't think that yeah. is in the, the original... The raid fight scene, basically? Yeah, the raid fight scene. It's, and it's yeah. longer, too, so there's more Batman action in this film. Um I don't know, there's but, some pretty horrific stuff in PG-13 movies. It, it's true. It's true. The thing that uh, I keep coming back to uh, that I think just sums it up perfectly, Rob Bricken does these fantastic uh, spoiler facts, FAQs, at uh, io9.com. And they're always hilarious and always really troubling about the movies that he's reviewing. And so it's just basically like a, a Q&A that he does with himself about the movie. And what I really like is this thing that I keep coming back to that I feel like just sums up everything. He writes here, question, can you tell me something else super disturbing about Zack Snyder that perfectly represents everything wrong with him in his film? And by the way, he's talking about the theatrical cut. Uh, I sure can. Did you know Jimmy Olsen is in Batman v Superman? Question, no way. I didn't see him. Yes, you did. He's the photographer who's accompanying Lois on her trip to Nairobi uh, or Nairobi, the one who gets his face blown off by terrorists almost immediately. Jimmy Olsen died without even being acknowledged as Jimmy Olsen? Yup. Zack Snyder had a beloved fan-favorite character murdered violently on screen brutally because that's what Zack Snyder likes. And do you know how he explained this decision? How? This is what he told Entertainment Weekly. We just did it as a little aside because we've been tracking where we thought the movies were going to go, and we don't have uh, room for Jimmy Olsen in our big pantheon of characters, but we can have fun with him, right? Question mark? This is an Easter egg for Zack Snyder. He killed one of Superman's key supporting characters for quote-unquote fun. He thinks murdering the characters that comic nerds want to see on screen is quote-unquote fun. And this is the man in charge of putting the entire universe of DC superheroes on screen. Uh, And so, yeah, Peter, that's why I laugh at your comment about how, oh, Jimmy Olsen's death is so much more brutal in this one. Yes, it is. And it also exemplifies the worst elements (laughs) Of Batman v Superman, so I don't know. I, I think that quote does, Dave. But I, I think if you had seen this cut with that introduction, that that, that does amplify the stakes of that. It, it does. It's just the fact that he thinks killing him is like 
it, that character did not need to be Jimmy Olsen. You know what I mean? Like anyway, well, he he wasn't in the theatrical cut. He still he still was. He still there. was. He's just not. They just don't tell. They just don't call him that. There is somebody um, who gets randomly shot. Yeah, it is that so, guy. So. Yeah, but they, they don't call him Jimmy Olsen, so it's, it never happened. But the Zack Snyder says in an interview he's Jimmy Olsen, so he's Jimmy Olsen, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, wow. that is canonical, is it not? Anyway. I, I don't think it's canonical <laughs> if it's not in the movie. All right. All right, Peter. Uh, well, this is this If goes it's in to, the movie goes... and they don't say like what that character's name is, but in the credits, I believe he is listed as Jimmy Olsen. This goes to a much broader question of like what is actually in the movie and what's canon. Jeff, you were about to ask a question, I think. Well, no, I, I was about to say that, uh, you know, Richard Donner, way back in 1977, he was all excited about making Superman film. He was all excited about all the, the story he wanted to cram in, and he had the wisdom to go, hey, maybe we should make two movies yeah. instead of one. It kind and of bite I, him in the ass. Uh, it did bite him part. in the ass. He got him fired. <laughs> yeah. But uh, in the long view of history, yes. it, it, it made for two much better movies. I don't – yeah. I don't and know I if think, we could make a movie like the first Superman today. Just the way that movie's set up and the like build up in that movie. It's crazy. No, that's probably true, but I, I also think that if you've got yourself three hours of movie mm-hmm. and uh, on paper, right? We know that on paper it was three hours of movie. There's no reason no there's no way they were like, you know, this was a this is a crisp one forty five we're shooting here. Uh and you know, you're trying to set up all these things and you're trying to cram in not one, but two of the most iconic Superman comic book stories of all time. At least, at least two gigantic story arcs in the comics are in this movie. I don't know. Why not be a little more patient and make this two films? Have one movie be all about. Superman versus Batman with, uh, you know, with with Lex Luthor sort of pulling the strings, which leads into a cliffhanger into a second movie, which mm-hmm. is Doomsday slash the beginnings of the Justice League. And and you can let things breathe a little. But, but you know why, character. Jeff. You know what? You, you got <laughs> to get those other movies out. Well, they're impatient <laughs> and you got to get those other movies out because right. if you split into two, then Marvel will be at, what, three Avengers movies by the time you know you finish with your <laughs> Batman versus Superman saga. And then how, how will you ever catch up? It's know. true. And also we're dealing with movies that theoretically uh, add a lot to a company's bottom line. And so when they're forecasting mm-hmm. out, they're making yeah. financial decisions that impact the art. You know, they're saying like, "Oh, we need to bring in seven hundred million dollars this year from this film, uh, and we we need to forecast we need to create how much- a franchise. Yeah. We need to create yeah. not right. just a franchise, but a movie universe." And I, I don't think that that's necessarily bad. I think it's the execution of it is bad here. Sure. On that note, Peter, you recently went on the. Oh. Uh, uh, DC Comics uh, slash Warner oh, yeah, Brothers we, apology tour, right? Go, yeah, go ahead. B- before we get to that, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I just want to say one thing because you mentioned Richard Donner, and I, I miss guys. I miss um, I miss movie montages that, like, you know, Superman saving people or the Ghostbusters, you know, go- saving people. Like, why can't we have movie montages, these uplifting movie montages with a theme song anymore? Like, I feel like we're losing something. <laughs> <laughs> We've lost yeah. a lot of things, Peter. We've just just watch Team got, America, Peter. That'll give you a, a really got, good uh, movie montage. We've got a, a creepy uh, Messiah-esque Superman <laughs> saving people, and he's terrifying slash 
Uh. <laughs> Jeff can't even finish the sarcastic can't even comment. Finish. Um, he doesn't save I, people. He starts to. I he will say, the, yeah, the one uh, element that was a shock to me in the Ultimate Edition is after the Capitol building blows up uh, in, in the Ultimate Edition, you see Superman actually helping people... What? You know, flying them out of the ru- ru- uh, the rubble and to safety. And I was just – I was stunned because I was like, A, wow, I don't know why they didn't include that in the original yeah. because it's so crucial to his character. But I guess yeah. you know, they were yeah. just trimming out every single possible piece of fat. And B, it saddens me that I was shocked because this movie just – these movies just don't have a lot of Superman saving people in a way that he feels like even remotely happy about. Mm-hmm. Um so I mean, every single time he's doing it, he he always looks really upset. So and they also clarify <laughs> somewhat why he goes into hiding, which I feel like in the movie, in the theatrical, you're like, why doesn't he just? Why did he run away? Uh, yeah, but, yeah, like that whole Capitol building stuff is explained a lot better. And spoiler for the Ultimate Edition, but basically, um, Scoop McNary's character had lead in his wheelchair, and that's why Superman couldn't see the bomb. And it was all done by Lex Luthor, or did I just blow your mind, guys? (laughs) Anyway, all right. uh, So I didn't enjoy the Ultimate Edition very much. Like, if you don't like the original, you're not going to like the Ultimate Edition. Uh, And I was mildly irritated that I was somewhat led to believe otherwise. But uh, Peter and I both agree. I I, I don't don't know who told you otherwise. Almost every (laughs) review I've read, Dave, has been like, this is a much better movie, but if you didn't like... The original movie, this is not going to be enough. Night and day difference, Peter. <laughs> Night and day is what I was told. Uh, anyway, uh, Peter and I both agree it's a much better film. Peter, uh, we're running out of time rapidly, but do you have yeah. any thoughts on the the apology tour that you went on? Basically, they invited a bunch of bloggers, yourself included, to basically try and assure people that this Justice League thing is not going to be a disaster. Um, so what was it like to go on that, and are you convinced? I mean, not that you needed to be. But are you convinced that Justice League will not be a disaster? It should be mentioned, Dave. Most of the people on this on this set visit were people that disliked right. the movie. Basically, Warner Brothers uh, invited a lot of people, right? Yeah. We talked about this last week, to, to the, the set of Justice League. And they tried to explain, like, hey, here are all the changes we're making so that you guys won't be super pissed next time. Uh, and you know, what did you think? Um you know what? The tone of the movie seems a lot more in line with Marvel. Um, it, it seems uh, to have some comedy and some uh, the pers- uh, the clash of personalities and having you know Batman interact with Superman and, or with Flash and, and Cyborg. Like it, it, it seems, you know, what we love about the Avengers films, like you know that scene where they're around the table with Thor's hammer, like that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying it's as clever as that. That's Joss Whedon. And we don't have him, uh, but it it seems like a much more hopeful and funny uh, tone. And uh, I, I mean, honestly, Dave, you, you say that they they brought us there and to say like, look at all the changes we've made, but they were very reluctant to say that they made any changes. It was it was mostly. The Snyders, both Zach and Debbie, basically saying that we always plan for Justice League to be lighter in tone and to be more of a uplifting story and whatever. Like this was always in the plans. Um, they weren't admitting any wrong. Mm. <laughs> we're admitting a course correction. Uh, it was more. Well, yeah, because if they like, did, it would make them seem like they're scrambling and not knowing yeah. what they're doing. Of I course. will say that. Yeah. I will say this. Oh, everything we saw. We saw a concept art room, and all the dates on all the concept art was 
way before Batman vs Superman was released. And everything I saw on set was exactly what I saw in the concept art. So I, I don't think that the story has changed much. Um, as but maybe, but maybe the tone might have. The tone yeah. could have. All right. Um, and, and what I saw on the set, I saw a film, I saw a scene being filmed. I saw a fin- or a near finished scene with uh, the Flash, and the Flash is going to steal this movie. Ezra Miller is like, you know, Tom Holland as Spider Man in Civil War. Like it's um, at least from what I saw, the two scenes. Interesting. Um, I'm a lot more hopeful. We're gonna uh, we're gonna get to the theater, and those are going to be the only two funny scenes <laughs> in the whole film. Uh, no, I'm just joking. It's cool that you got invited, Peter, and uh, glad to hear that Justice League might be on a on a better path. So, yeah, and, and you can read that full set visit if you search for Justice League set visit slash home. All right. Um, uh, well, that's what I've been watching this week. Devinder Hardware, you've been watching a couple things. Uh, yeah, a few things. I saw Zero Days, the new documentary from Alex Gibney, and this is his exploration of the Stuxnet worm. And this is that thing. It's a, it's a really interesting film because Stuxnet, if you guys uh, didn't know, uh, is believed to be tied to the U.S. and Israel as like a co-developed cyber weapon um that was meant to attack iran's nuclear facilities and this movie just kind of dives into that uh, it, it we're living in a weird space because it, there's enough proof out there it's been kind of outed since 2012 that uh, i think it was the washington post who uh, had a report on this but kind of outed the u.s and israel as the main culprits behind it uh this movie kind of goes deeper it uh explores some interesting things too like uh the u.s had this idea of what Stuxnet was going to be, uh, and then uh, Israel basically took the code, amped it up, and turned it into the thing that got spread all over the world. And the thing is, since neither country has acknowledged its uh, its existence, we can't even talk about it in like a legitimate way. And the movie makes an interesting point. Like we're in we're in a world now where computer code can attack physical objects, right? Everything you saw in Black Hat uh, and loved in Black Hat <laughs> is actually true and is actually much worse than the plot of that stupid movie. Uh, because like right now, countries have the capability of like turning off entire electrical grids, right? We're not talking about just like destroying a dam uh, in a tiny remote village somewhere. Um, so like, yeah, things are scary. And I like this movie because uh, it kind of makes a point that, you know, it, it, when we had nuclear weapons, right, when we had the nuclear race, uh, countries kind of got together after the atomic bombs dropped and were like, hey, uh, this is terrible and frightening. Let's talk about it and let's, like, make sure that we, like, we don't all destroy each other because we easily can. And right now with cyber weapons, we we don't have that. We have this thing that is has existed and has done bad things, Um it's actually worked, but it's also escaped and, you know, gotten to the rest of the world. Uh, it shows that we don't really know how to talk about this stuff. And if we don't talk about it, who knows what the hell is going to happen, guys? Like, whatever you're afraid of in terms of, like, nuclear Armageddon, uh, it's it's probably m- more going to be like a rogue cyber weapon or something. Um, because we've also seen countries respond to Sexnet, uh, even though there there is no, like, global conversation about it. So this movie is very interesting. If you want to be terrified about where we're headed... And and uh, how much worse the world can get. Check this out. All right. That's Zero Days, <laughs> the newest film by Alex Gibney. And yes. It, it sounds like you look for that. Yeah. The whole Stuxnet thing is super fascinating. It's, and it's how- great. Uh, I actually I have a video interview with him going up at, on Engadget on Monday, too. So check that out. Cool. He is a he is a hard man to uh, to interview because he, he never laughs like he's just <laughs> stone faced. 
I was at a Q and A. Yeah, I was yeah. at a Q and A uh, with him at, uh, for a film called We Steal Secrets. Yeah, uh, the, the WikiLeaks, the movie. WikiLeaks yeah. movie, and yeah, things got really heated in the audience. Uh, but I think at this point, uh, the guy cranks out like four movies a year. You there's know, something something article, ridiculous. Yeah, there's a great article. I forget where it is, but if you search Alex Gibney like factory, I think that's what it is because he has <laughs> yeah. like basically a floor of a factory somewhere of just like you know reporters and researchers and all sorts of people like putting all this stuff together. The controversy is like we don't know how much of it is him yeah. doing the actual he, work, but he's still yeah. the one who's like the director of every yes. single film. Director, Where, writer, yeah. Whereas you could when, do that too, Dave, if you didn't spend all that time laughing. <laughs> that's right. When uh, all that time, when you exactly. see a movie like uh, like Errol Morris's movies, I, I really feel it might not be accurate, but I really feel like he's the one that like put in all the work to make that. I I mean, you hear his voice. He's the one doing all the interviews. You know, um, so uh, sometimes because of how prolific Alex Gibney is, people have questioned how much of the movies are him, but uh, sounds like well, you enjoyed this one, right? Zero it's days. a great one, yeah. yeah. All right. One of the things that really bothers me about Alex Gibney, Gibney's movies is how talking head heady it is. Yes. Like, yes. They really don't usually have that much footage other than like um, archival footage. Intercut- that's, that is the point. Like you're, you're watching these things because he is talking to people that you know normally haven't talked about these particular two subjects. So yeah, it's but, a very they're more talky and less cinematic than maybe Errol Morris's stuff. But. Not even not yeah, yeah, I mean Errol Morris uses recreations, but there yeah. you know a lot of a key element of documentaries is footage that you actually yes. go out into the world to get, you know. And uh, in this one there's actually a really interesting thing too where he he talks to some I think it's uh, NSA sources or CIA sources, but he couldn't get them on the record. So he created this like digital construct huh. of an actor and basically wrote lines for that actor based on the conversations they had with these classified sources. Wow. And so it's a virtual talking head, if you will. <laughs> um, but it, it's still really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. And what else have you been watching, Devendra? Also, just want to shout out to Orange is the New Black Season 4. Guys, like, this show is amazing. It's fantastic. And it is such a fascinating um, lens on, like, where America is right now and kind of our racial politics and gender politics and everything. Uh, something insane and heartbreaking happens in this uh, in this season. And then I turn on the news and, you know, it's the beginning of this week and just hell, just like police you know, uh, attacking black people. And then it gets worse and worse. And then there's what happens in Dallas. I don't think there's a show on air right now that reflects where we are in society as well as this one. It's incredibly well acted, well written. If you've given up on Orange is the New Black at any point, because um, I think season three was a little rocky for some people, yeah. um, embrace it. Because this isn't a show that you're not watching this to see, oh, what happens to Piper this time? When is she going to get out of jail? No, guys, fuck that. There are many, many other women in this prison. There are many other stories to be told. And no show is telling these stories about like women, uh, people of color in different situations uh, with as much heart and empathy as this show. This show is fantastic. I've seen it described as a... Uh, kind of like misery porn to some people and fuck that like fuck whoever says that about this because this is this is a show that is approaching all these situations with empathy with like trying to understand what's going on and i I don't think they're you know it's it's also a really diverse show behind the camera too and it's kind of reflected like that so this show is beautiful this season is incredible you need to see it all of you okay that's it all right, that's Orange is the New Black Season 4. I've heard Season 4 is a significant improvement over Season 3. 
so I'm looking forward to getting back into it, Devendra. Uh, anyway, Jeff Kanata, you've been watching something on Netflix as well, right? Yeah, you know, I, I talked at length uh, about Bloodline season one when I watched that. I thought it was phenomenal. Um, and season two, I just finished with my wife, and it is uh, equally phenomenal and continues everything. It's it's really interesting. The episodes of Bloodline uh, don't have individual titles. They have part one, part two, part three. Season two, it's like part 20, right? So just right there you know that th- this is not being viewed as an episodic. This is one big long story we're in part like 22 of and it- everything matters. Everything flows from the very first episode. It is one giant 20 plus hour long film and it's great the performances are amazing it, it it really scratches that itch that i loved from the shield where you find yourself looking at characters who are doing the right thing and rooting against them like no 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 don't catch our our heroes who are really right. terrible people doing terrible things oh, i can't believe i'm in this position how did i get myself here right um but it's but it's fascinating. It's complicated. There, the thing that they do so well in that series is that no character doesn't have horrible secrets. No character is is completely pure. Everybody has morality issues and shades of gray. Even characters that started out as Boy Scouts, it, it, it it's really really good. And I was wondering to myself, <clears throat> what actor has a better back to back TV series? That you know, Walton Goggins has the Shield and Justified. He may be the only one better than than Kyle Chandler with uh, mm-hmm. Friday Night Lights and Bloodline. I guess the only other person I could put in that league is Peter Krause with Six Feet Under and Into Parenthood. Uh, I don't. Some people might say Michael C. Hall, but I didn't really like Dexter. Uh, so I don't know if you guys have any better ones. But I, I think having going from an iconic amazing character in an iconic amazing show to then following that up with another equally excellent show is a tough thing and Kyle Chandler has done it with Friday Night Lights to Bloodline this is he is great in it everybody is great in it they find ways in this in season 2 to inc- keep including characters that you might not think were possible to keep including it, it's really interesting and really good and beautifully shot very cool. Uh, that's Bloodline Season 2. I haven't seen any of Bloodline yet. Uh, it's so good, Dave. It's so good. I think you'd enjoy it, yeah. Uh, I heard Season 1 is really slow, but that the end yeah. of Season 1 is like I do incredible. feel like Season 2 is even slower. I'm like three episodes <laughs> really? in, and, and it feels like nothing has happened. But that's just how the show is, right? It is the slow burn Ray Burns. I felt like Season 2 was less of that, but maybe it's just more I was more used to it. But uh, mm-hmm. it... it I, Equally pays off in the end. Those last three or four episodes are like, oh my god, we, we can't stop watching. We can't stop watching. Well, again, a lot of stuff going on on Netflix uh, these days. Bloodline season two, Orange is New Black season four. Thank you guys for sharing. Looking forward to getting into those. Let's get to our review of Neon Demon. Before we do that, got to thank all the people that donated to the Slash Filmcast this week. Uh, we got to thank James from Dallas, Texas, as well as Christoph Osowski and Florian Cosson, as well as Michael Son. Uh, for their recurring donations of $2 per month. Thank you guys so much for contributing to this podcast. If you want to support what we do here at SlashFilm.com, use the SlashFilmCast tab at SlashFilm.com and use the PayPal links on the side of the page to sign up for a one-time donation or a recurring donation. All the uh, amounts of money that you donate goes to defray the cost of seeing movies and putting on the show, 
including things like uh, the Batman v Superman Ultimate Edition, which uh, is very expensive. <laughs> we'll just say for just what, in the liquor costs, right? What, just how much uh, liquor you had to drink. Indeed, to get through it. indeed. Um, all right, that's going to bring us to the end of what we've been watching. It's also going to bring us to the end of Peter Serretta's time with us today. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Where can people find more of your work on the internet, Peter? You can find me at SlashFilm.com and Twitter.com slash SlashFilm. And um, follow us on the Summer Movie Wager, where I am currently in the lead, Dave. I'm not uh, sure if you knew that. Uh, thanks for reminding us. Uh, all right, let's get straight to our review of The Neon Demon. I see 20 or 30 girls come in here every day. From small towns with big dreams. Some girls crack under the pressure. You, you're going to be great. What's it feel like to walk into a room? It's like in the middle of winter. You're the sun. everything that was from the trailer of the neon demon the newest film by writer director nicholas winding refin uh, and it stars al fanning carl glusman jenna malone as well as keanu reeves uh, you're listening to the slash film cast and joining us today is uh, a very awesome guest she is associate editor at screencrush.com brit hayes welcome back to the slash film cast brit how are you doing today Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me back. Great to have you on, Britt. And uh, I, I think our uh, review with you of uh, Under the Skin is still one of my favorite reviews of all time on this podcast. Uh, so really grateful that you are joining us for uh, this review as well. The Neon Demon, a very challenging film by uh, a very audacious director. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. When aspiring model Jessie moves to Los Angeles, her youth and vitality are devoured by a group of beauty-obsessed women who will take any means necessary to get what she has. Uh, so, Britt, do you have any overall thoughts on Nicholas Winding Refn? Are you a fan of his work? And uh, what did you think of The Neon Demon? I'm, I'm a big fan of, of his work. Um, I think I'm in the smaller camp of people who really love Only God Forgives. Um, I know that one's one of his more divisive films, but I mean, I, I love all of his work and I really love The Neon Demon. I think that it's already. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. Who exploded Vivian Stone? Was it Screen Hunk McSalad? Mother's Digest called me dependably erotic. Leading Lady Joanna Shoebags. Oh, you call me dramatic again, I will die! First time director Wallace Byrne Matravers. I think I'll just keep my clothes on for now. Assistant director Laura Side Salad. If I can help you direct this film, I can certainly help direct your winkle. Technician James Wiggington. You've got a funny way of addressing a man holding a power drill. Or someone else entirely. Listen in to find out who exploded Vivian Stone. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from the UK and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Already being uh, misunderstood by a lot of people. Why do you think it's misunderstood? You know, I think that people aren't really understanding some of the 
the darker satirical aspects of it. I mean, in my review, and like the first thing I said, actually, when I walked out of the screening was like, this is like showgirls. <laughs> yes, yes, totally showgirls. It is. In, in like, both the good and bad ways, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I actually saw somebody tweet like about a month or so ago when they saw it, maybe like an early screening. They said it's as if Tom Ford directed Showgirls, and I really couldn't think of a better comparison when I walked out. <laughs> mm. Yes. So when you say you think it's like Showgirls, like let's let's dive into that a little bit more. I mean, we don't need to refer to Showgirls specifically, but you you just think it is a satire of the fashion industry, correct? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's satirical of not only the fashion industry. Um, but of like narcissism and vanity and um, L.A. and uh, I don't know, like the whole industry. I think that it's very it, – it knows exactly what it's doing. It's very self-aware. Um, everything's kind of done with like a smirk. Um, it's a really hilarious movie at times. I mean I don't think it's consistently mm-hmm. funny. There are moments that are genuinely unnerving. But there is some real humor in there. Um and similar, I think, to Verhoeven's like Showgirls, is in that it has like that weird, dark fairy tale element. Um, it almost, I think, by the third act, reads like a weird inverse of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can see that. I can see that. So overall, you're you're a huge fan of this film, then, right? Right, Britt? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and you know, also what I mean by it being misunderstood is that I've seen a lot of reviews that have been. Not a lot, but I've seen a few that really kind of irked me because they would say like, oh, there was one, and I'm not going to say from where, but it was like, <laughs> uh, Nicholas Winding Ruffin wants to have his cake and eat it too. And it's like, it's condemning <laughs> narcissism, but embracing it at the same time. And it's like, oh, right, because we as people don't have a complicated relationship and hold competing ideas about things all the time. Uh that would be unrealistic, right? <laughs> um, so it was just like, it's like, I think people want it. To, I think people want a lot of movies to just sort of like pick a side. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't think it needs to pick a side because our relationship with narcissism is complex, especially now with social media as prevalent as it is and our relationships to our phones and our cameras um, and selfies. I mean, like we want to look great and we want people to think we look great and uh, we want to feel good about ourselves. But at the same time, uh, we kind of hate that, that whole culture. So it, yeah. it is, it's both. I, I think there are a lot of interesting elements to the film. The, the narcissism elements uh, are kind of interesting to me. I think the idea that uh, former generations would have seen narcissism as a vice uh, and like our generation in many ways, like it's, a virtue, right? And if, if there's like a lot of cultural shifts, like you said, with selfies being uh, a cultural phenomenon these days. Uh, more to say, but first, uh, you know, Britt, prepare to potentially be irritated by some of our dismissive views of the film. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm glad we are we have you here, so uh, you can help us talk about it. But Jeff Kanata, uh, I believe when you saw this film, you texted me. Uh, you texted Devinder and I, and you said. Can't believe you made me watch that movie. <laughs> <laughs> right, because what? you had you had already seen it when we decided to uh, review it. <laughs> and and I, yeah, I was, this, this is something Jeff Kanata would like. <laughs> <laughs> I was not the hugest fan of The Neon Demon myself, but Jeff... Right. Uh, you said, was... I didn't like it, but let's review it, guys. And <laughs> so I said, 
Anyway, uh, I'm very glad Britt is here, and I and and my views may be irksome to you, but I'd love to have the discussion about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I got a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree, uh, <laughs> which I which I call a, a degree in make believe. Uh, the the reason I bring that up is because uh, going to a college that offers a Bachelor in Fine Arts degrees means that I saw a lot of shit when I was in college, <laughs> um, and uh, I'm very well versed in. Uh, pretentious authorship and uh which means uh i think i have maybe less patience for it and feel like i see it coming a mile away and uh watching this movie reminded me a lot of a lot of student films that i saw Mm -hmm. and a lot of theater that i saw that thinks it's being more profound than it is um and yet that doesn't mean i hated this movie um, I think the movie is overlong and self-indulgent and plodding. And yet through like 90% of it, as soon as I was like checking out and going, fuck you movie, we're, we're really going to have another moment of like the music comes up and w- everything goes into slow motion and we just spend 20 minutes staring longingly at something for no reason. Uh, as soon as I was like, fuck you, movie, there would be this amazing bit of dialogue uh, w- that I would totally draw me in and go, oh, maybe this this really does have interesting things to say. There's a scene in a bar that is, you know, where one character asks another character to, like, judge this model. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, oh, this is amazing. And for once, we're, we're talking about... Uh, being seduced into a world of uh, gloss and um, uh, superficiality, and we're not delving into drugs, right? Usually the way these kinds of stories go are young ingenue uh, is seduced into that world and then like goes down this road of, of drug abuse and physically uh, assaults her body and, and goes and sort of goes into oblivion that way. And this movie, I think it's much more interesting to say, no, it, it's not even about that. It's about, like, buying what they're selling, like, believing mm-hmm. in the the lie of the narcissism and sort of investing in all of that superficiality as if it has substance. And I, I think there were some really interesting things to say. And then every, you know, ten minutes, as soon as I was like, oh, wow, this movie is actually doing something cool – then it would, again, sort of wander off and be self-indulgent and just have someone have fall in love with the Triforce from Zelda for some reason uh, and just, you know, like do things that – it just felt like you're wasting my time and it's super self-indulgent and just cut out a half an hour of this movie. And then we get to the last ten minutes, which – I think just completely undermines anything that this movie was trying to do. Oh no! no. <laughs> All right, here let's. It let's a completely different yeah, movie. Let, let's let us say. Let's save the spoiler talk for just a little bit from now. Um, yeah. So I want to hear what both of you guys have to say about the ending. But first, Devinder Hardwar, your thoughts on the Neon Demon? I do feel like this is a movie that I'm uh, still chewing on. Maybe uh, we'll be digesting for a while. Maybe it'll uh, come back up again. Maybe you know? I don't. I don't know. Uh, but this is how. Like, and that's how I felt. Uh, about a lot of reference work especially like his less like his non-drive stuff right they're they're typically a little divisive a little hard to get into there's so many elements of this movie that i love that score this may be cliff martinez's uh best score ever just because it's uh it is so evocative it's so unique 
and kind of haunting in a way too. Like as soon as I left the theater, I was listening to this as as I was uh, walking through New York and kind of felt the same emotions. Um, it's as uh, you know, it's also beautiful in so many ways. And uh, Refn at his best is sort of like an aesthetic technician, right? He's very cold in terms of his technique. Um, and if you don't like, if he doesn't have warmth in the script or something to kind of work with, that may seem a little too distant and maybe a little too cold. Uh, one thing I really liked about Drive is that it did kind of combine his his style plus like the emotion of a very good script. And I don't think the script is anywhere near that level either. Like some of the early dialogue just feels it feels terrible. It sounds awful. It sounds like uh, student film stuff, like you were saying, Jeff. Uh, but then again, like uh, occasionally you'll come across an image that is just so evocative and the way he frames it and the way he lingers on it kind of just sears it into your brain, um, which is I, I love slow burn movies like this, too. I'm still trying to figure out if it works overall. I really liked it. Um, I think it could have like it could have benefited from being cut down a little, maybe being a little more focused in terms of what it was doing. And if you like look at it on the you know at, at a bare bones level, right? It's not really doing that much new. It's kind of how he's doing it. And I actually think only God forgives by showing kind of that world and uh, that's a very different foreign world from what we're usually seeing. Uh, I kind of give that movie credit for trying to be a little different. But there is so much to love here. So much subtlety going on. Um, Elle Fanning is incredible. Um, but I also, Jenna Malone, guys, like she is, she is insanely great in this movie, as well as uh, the two actresses who play her, uh, her kind of, her model friends who kind of are coming into this world from a very different perspective. There's so much, it's just really interesting. This is a movie I really want to revisit. Um, and yeah, I can also see why looking at it, it, looks like pretentious garbage too so it's i'm of two minds about it right now i was quite interested to read a sometimes contentious conversation with the neon demon director nicholas winding and composer cliff martinez that jacob hall uh wrote up at slashfilm.com uh this is an uncomfortable interview probably one of the most (laughs) uncomfortable interviews we've published uh, but and, all of his interviews around this movie have been uncomfortable like uh, his Nicholas ego is on full full alert here yeah it You're, is on full display my interview with him which i haven't published yet i'm waiting for uh, the DVD <laughs> release but uh, our interview was great like it was <laughs> really good and so i kept hearing from friends jacob included i was getting texts yeah. was your did your interview go okay were they difficult and like <laughs> No, they were fine. We had a really great talk. We bonded over showgirls. It was amazing. Like they're like, oh, they were they were really difficult with me. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe showgirls was the secret word, Brett. That uh, was it. I, yeah. I mean, you can read like it's it's one thing when an interview you read like the text yes. makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. Then it's like, okay, wow. However uncomfortable it is for me reading it, it must have been uh, ten times more uncomfortable in, in real life. <laughs> Uh, so the question uh, that Jacob asks, like Only God Forgives, the neon demon lean, leans heavily on atmosphere and ideas rather than tell a straightforward story. How much of your process is finding the movie in the editing room? How much is invention there on the set? Refn says, I mean, the story is pretty accessible. I mean, what's a good story? Jacob says, you tell me. Refn says, no, you tell me. You're the <laughs> one saying that it's heavy on the other things. I'm just wondering what makes you draw that conclusion. Jacob says, I'm just saying that the movie doesn't follow traditional or predictable arcs. It goes where it wants to go with no concern for common structure. Refn says, is 2001 A Space Odyssey a bad story? <laughs> Jacob Hall says, of course not. He's right. He's Refn right. says, then what's the difference here? Okay, I'm going to stop there. And yeah. there's another point There's another point where 
references, uh, they're talking about like how Drive was much better received than Neon Demon and Only God Forgives. And then Reffin challenges Jacob to come up with the story, like tell me what this, the plot is of Drive. And Jacob is unable to produce it in, in enough time. Uh, and Reffin basically says, well, see, like the story doesn't <laughs> even matter. Like all of my movies are the same. And I just call complete yeah. bullshit on that. I feel I like mean, he's learning the wrong lesson from this movie, but yeah. I, I, so well, I would I, say I definitely yeah. saw parallels to Drive yes, in this movie. Yeah. I mean, it's it's basically the same thing where it, like it keeps it keeps promising menace, and you, and then you get to the point where you're like, maybe there's no menace in this movie, and then it's like, oh no, there's fucking a lot of shit. It, it's coming. Of it's coming. It, it, it's the same sort of like L.A. exploration too, except this time from the more female perspective. Yeah. I would say that, uh, yeah, I, I was quite frustrated by the film because yeah. of kind of what Jacob is describing, that I don't yes, feel yes. like it follows a, a traditional plot arc. And uh, that is fine. Like, if that's your kind of thing, uh, you know, may, uh, I'm, perhaps I'm, in, I'm too close-minded in some ways. I think <laughs> what this movie is great on is it's beautiful. The score is great. The performances are great. And uh, it, I think it conveys a lot of its themes really effectively. Uh, but it's... I found it mostly to be like Only God Forgives, you know, primarily about mood, primarily about atmosphere, primarily about fine, making though. you feel a certain way. Right, exactly. Yes. So I'm fine with that if that like that's the kind of movie you're trying to make. But I, I where I get off the train is that uh, with reference saying, oh, it, like Drive also doesn't have a plot. It's not also not traditional, <laughs> and I just simply disagree with that. I think that uh-huh. Drive is much more of a traditional plot than this film. Well, this uh, movie is a pretty traditional plot, too. Like, if you, if we, we'll have to do this in spoilers, but if you break down this movie, it is a very typical yeah, I, I, I think the, the, bus, the plot the is traditional. It changes. The plot is traditional. I think how it's realized yeah. uh, and the, the pacing. Thing, yeah, so. yeah. Mm-hmm. The thing with, with all of Ruffin's films, uh, and I think kind of what he means, too, because he and I spoke about this, was the plot of every one of his films is really simple to explain. Yeah. You, you could do it in one sentence. Yes. Where it gets complex is in your own interpretation of it, in the way that you digest the imagery, and the way that that imagery and those themes that he creates enhance that plot. So I think it's almost like dismissive to say that like his films don't really have much of a plot, or uh, or even that they're not even traditionally narratively structured, which I kind of disagree with. Because if anything, like the most simple thing in his movies is the narrative. Yeah. Sure. Um, maybe I'm not thinking about like structure so much as like how the plot is realized, and that 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 for instance, there seem to be all these other sort of side plots, or that there's all this focus on imagery in a way that a uh, non-reference film might not have. You know, like there might not <laughs> be. A, yeah, yeah. Again, I'm not. I'm not passing judgment. I'm simply trying to, I guess, describe right, what right. I perceive as a difference between the Neon Demon. And you know Captain America: Civil War mm-hmm. that like that like just like it, you know it dwells on these uh, tableaus uh, and uh, it's it's very moody and it you know it just kind of gives these scenes room to breathe perhaps mm-hmm. past the point that I enjoy it and it sounds like kind of Jeff agrees with me in some ways on this. He also um, embraces a certain amount of surrealism, which I think we're not used to outside yes, of like art house cinema. Like we, we talked about Hodorowski's Dune, right? We reviewed that and Refin, uh, Hodorowski basically like considers Refin like his, his little protege and they do kind of work in similar levels. Like you watch some of those older films like El Topo. Uh, they, 
those things will blow your mind. Yes. You're talking about like not constraining <laughs> to traditional rules. Fuck any of that. Yep. And I kind of I kind of respect the fact that we have somebody who can do something like this, even though he's still working like on the independent level. But he is definitely committed to vision. And like fuck if anybody, uh, it, he's not making this for us or for an audience he's kind of making all of these things for him um and there are problems with that for sure but i i'm definitely embracing like where he's going what i'm not embracing though is like his growing ego like i i've read and listened to a lot of interviews with him too um he did a, a q a after screening here and i've had friends who just walked out because he was just talking about like himself and how great he is and like the, he was like dismissive to the dp at one point during his q a's and my friends were just like fuck this because if there's anybody you should thank for helping them make your vision come true it's the dp and he was like oh yeah we just we just found somebody to kind of make this happen um so it's that that's the sort of thing that pisses me off not his like narrative sensibilities that's particularly interesting that I mean like I I personally don't stick around for most Q&As and yeah. his Q&A here I didn't stick around for because I had already spoken to him but also like yeah I mean like his persona when he's in front of an audience is not yeah. great um I he think he's the real friend, neon demon guys yeah he is the real <laughs> neon demon uh my friend even leaned over because you know the way he dresses and she's like yeah. button up his shirt he's a dad uh, you need man cleavage. <laughs> he needs man cleavage. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, it's kind of disheartening to hear him dismiss the DP because I think yeah. this is the first time he actually worked with a woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, so Britt, to return to your point earlier, I, I agree with you that from a plot perspective, all of his films are, are similar. But I think that uh, there's something about the way that a movie like Drive or the Pusher Trilogy is plotted and executed uh, <laughs> that just is different than a movie like Only God Forgives or uh, or The Neon Demon. I don't think he sees a difference, um, but uh, f- for some reason I, as an audience member, feel a difference, and I'm just simply trying to articulate why that might be. Uh, but it sounds like for you, uh, they're all very much kind of of a, of a piece, uh, you know, of like the same body of work, right? Uh, kind of. I mean, to a degree. I would say you could look at pretty much everything up to this as cut from a very masculine cloth, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yes. Everything is uh, mm-hmm. everything is very masculine. And this is, you know, feminine, but I think it finds uh, – what's the right way to put that? I mean, I think it finds like sort of a, a parallel between the masculine and the feminine. I mean, there's a very primitive sort of – emotion uh some sort of like primal energy that's driving the neon demon and uh i mean typically we see that men are portrayed as as competitive and um they feel the need to compete with one another and have these like pissing contests and uh here it's showing that women have a very primitive urge to compete with one another it's interesting that you say that Uh, i i i I'm glad that you you felt it, it was feminine because I I felt like it lacked femininity. I felt like what it could benefit from is some femininity. I felt like it it imposed a masculine view on this very female experience. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. No, I mean I would I would agree that it still feels like you're watching a man. Yeah. A man's version right. of what that looks like, but I can't fault him. And I've had I had this conversation with other people. Um, I've, I've been talking about this movie a lot lately, and it's I I would compare it, I think, to Antichrist and yeah. to, I mean, as much as Ruffin hates Von Trier, I mean, they are similar, and they're both, <laughs> they're both Danish, you know. So go figure. But um, 
I would say that, you know, when you watch a Von Trier film and especially Antichrist, it feels like you're watching somebody sort of work out this, um, this inherent sexism. I mean, men are inherently sexist. You can't help that. You're born that way. Right. Um, and I feel like it's like watching them try to work out their complicated mm-hmm. relationships with women and having opinions about women that I think that maybe they're not even sure they're allowed to have um, and sort of their view of the way that women view themselves. And I think that's fascinating. I don't think there's anything wrong with a director or a man or anyone like writing or directing a film um, that's like, you know, this is the way that I see that women see themselves because it's honest. It's them like right. putting it out there. But th- there, there is a sense that I have when watching this movie that I'm never inside Elle Fanning's experience. I am always observing her experience. I am. It feels very much like a man watching these women mm-hmm. go through something and trying to figure it out rather than she's our main character, right? We're supposed to be inside her – at least I wished I could have felt – more like I was inside her experience and feeling a kinship with her. And it always felt distant. It always felt observed. She always felt like a specimen under a microscope rather than someone I can empathize with. I think that's sort of the point though, too, is that she's not supposed to, you're not really supposed to empathize with her very much. Um, I mean, given the nature of what she's doing as a model, that's kind of how she's treated as an object. You're not really, I mean, she is, she's sort of cold and wispy and, and not easy to know. And, um, but at the same time, she feels like so many characters that we've seen before, these girls that like go out to LA to try and make it. And, you know, it's like, does she really need to have that much of a personality? No. I mean, like, she's just, she's sort of like a vessel. I, I th- it's interesting how much she embraces it too, right? Like the opening, that beautiful opening shot feels like, that would be like the horrific last act, you know, thing <laughs> that somebody does. Like, oh, I'm going to go here and be a model. I'm going to do beautiful things. And oh, no, I'm being a you know horrible murder victim or something in this photo. But no, this is how the movie begins. And I think it, it's totally interesting how she embraces her own skills and her own gifts and the, this is spoiler territory, I guess. But like, there there is a point where she just well, makes hey, a hey, let's just, yeah. just let's just hold off for like one more yeah. minute, okay? So, uh, <laughs> uh, let me just say the two things I really like about the movie. The one one is that yeah, what you point out, Devendra, the uh, associations that this movie draws between fashion and death. Uh, I think are are really interesting. The idea it's a little on the nose. The, the idea, yeah, like yeah. When you look at these fashion the catalogs, <laughs> when you look at these fashion catalogs, a lot of these yeah. women look like they could as well be dead. And mm-hmm. the idea that you know our society has some kind of uh, uh, association between these two things, you know, that like women who are fashionable like must be stick thin and must pose in ways that make them look dead. It's kind of a, a, an interesting way that the movie connects them. And I also really like this article that Holland Farkas wrote at Birth Movie's Death called The Neon Demon's Redefinition of Narcissism, where they write, quote, the mixed message in, in our society involves both the deification and subjugation of young women. We want them sexually, yet they must be pure. We celebrate them, yet they can never express a desire to be celebrated. We want to be them, yet we revile them. This contradiction is so devastating as a societal expectation because it is subconsciously and sometimes consciously used to keep girls powerless, end quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, there are a lot of contradictions to how society perceives beauty, and I do think... Uh, the movie brings them to light in sometimes shocking fashion. But uh, 
overall, I was still frustrated by the movie. Sounds like Jeff Kanata was as well. Sounds like Devinder Hardwar and Britt Hayes really enjoyed it. Um, mm-hmm. So why don't we start talking about some of the spoilers involved with Neon Demon starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret. You want to be fooled. I mean, the point where um, Jesse is basically like, they they all want to be me. And, like, her understanding of that and her power in that situation... I think really separates her from most of these stories where we see where a lot of these girls are powerless and going into it and like, yeah, dealing with drugs and people abusing them and things like that. They, it does feel like the tables turn a little. And then, yeah, that all leads up to the finale, which is shocking and very different. But I also feel like you could see it coming too. like the, the movie definitely like laid the breadcrumbs to get you to like the scene of her death and what happens and everything after. Yeah. So the ending is that uh, these women who, uh, want to want to stop her and want to take what she has. They uh, they kill Al Fanning's character of Jesse, and then they eat her off screen, right? And they kind of take a shower in her blood. I believe is uh, if I I'm think not mistaken, showering off the blood. But that's I, what it looked like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just showering off the blood. That's what I mean. Yeah, that's what you do. Yeah, you know, you, got, you can't walk around in the blood all day. <laughs> that would be gruesome. Britt, what would yeah, be gauche? There's, there's, there's a lot. I think in that third act to talk about. Mm-hmm, um, definitely. <laughs> first of all, that, um, I, I mean, I just want to like go back real quick to like the beginning. Cause I never got to, to yes. put this in here, but, um, I think if you're looking for a thesis statement for this movie, it's in that bathroom scene early on where Abby Lee, who is incredible. And I think is just as good, if not better, maybe than Jenna Malone in this, um, where Abby Lee says, that, you know, women, when when you see a beautiful woman walk in, your first thought isn't like, you know, I want to like be her friend or like whatever. I mean, your first thought is like, who is she fucking? Could I fuck that person too? How high can she climb? And is it higher than me? Mm-hmm. Because that is the instinct. That is the female instinct is not like, you know, oh, let's be friends or like, oh, I'm jealous of her. Or like, it's, I want to tear her down because she's better than me. And if she's gone, then I'm the best. Um, <laughs> so let me ask you a question, Britt. Doesn't it strike you as like problematic that the film states that just explicitly? You know, shouldn't films do try and do that in a more subtle way through the actions of the characters and the plot of the film versus just like saying outright what mm-hmm. it's trying to convey? Like, do you have a problem with that? No, I don't. I mean, because I think it, it really just depends on the film. Um, and I, it, like, who am I to say what a film should or shouldn't do? I'm just, you know, giving my opinion on what it did do. Sure. So, uh, you know, I'm not a filmmaker, but I think it just depends on the film. Like, I mean, in this, like, I think in, in this particular film and in that particular scene, it feels right. There's almost like a Mean Girls quality to it, too. Like, uh, they get annoyed with her because she won't, she's she's not acting like them. You know, she's not, like, saying, like, oh, I'm, you know, oh, I don't like my nose or I don't like, you know... When Bella Heathcote's like, oh, you know, everyone, everyone hates something about themselves. And she's like, I don't. <laughs> it's like that scene in Mean Girls where they're standing in front of the mirror and they're all like criticizing themselves. And Lindsay Lohan's just like, oh, um, I guess like my cuticles are bad. I don't know. I mean, like, you know, uh, I don't really I, the tone of this film, the dark humor of it and stuff. I think that it's 
I think it's fine. Like, I think that it works just fine. And it's one of my favorite moments of the movie because it does. It explicitly states, like, this is what's happening. <laughs> well, I, I, mm-hmm. I, I have a problem with the, the explicitness of this movie because kind of what Devinder was saying is everything in this movie is so on the nose until it isn't. And when it isn't, it's like this glimmer of <laughs> the potential here. It's like, oh, my gosh, if everything in this movie had been as evocative and affecting as – that conversation in the bar with the with the director guy, not director, yeah. but he's a, yeah. a fashionista, whatever whatever he is, uh, designer, um, or that moment right before the movie makes the right turn into Crazy Town, uh, where uh, she the the door to her uh, hotel room jiggles, she's terrified, and then the evidently the person goes to the next room and rapes that woman. That I. I had to turn away from the screen. I was so disturbed by that moment and hearing that happen right next to her. And the way she like leaned her ear into that into the wall and heard it. I was like, oh my god, where are we going now? It's mm-hmm. now she's kind of even turned on by the level of exploitation and there's this weird voyeurism that she's uh seduced by as well. But then it's like we go from that to this voiceover of her being terrified, which is completely the opposite of what we're seeing her do, right? Mm-hmm. And, and now, and now it just it just shotguns us into this stupid, fucked up ending that I think is oh. absolutely, <laughs> completely on the nose. Like there is no metaphor for eating right. someone, and <laughs> which is it's fine which though. There is though. Yeah. It, it, it is. It is to me uh, that yeah, that's it, it why is subtext I, made text basically. Yeah, right. It, but, to it, me, that's why. I, time, that's why I think of it mm-hmm. as uh, the kind of bad bachelor fine arts right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> movies and theater pieces that I saw ad nauseum and spent way too much I mean, time and yeah, money. I've doing. seen a lot it's of those too, Jeff. They're all. Yeah. They're I've seen all, a lot of those yeah. too. Oh no, no, I'm not saying. I'm not saying <laughs> I saw them and you guys didn't. I'm yeah. just, no, I hear you. I hear you. But I'm just saying it reminds it reminds me of those people that think they're being profound and it's the most obvious version of that. Yeah, Terrence Malick. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yes, uh, yes. The worst parts of Terrence Malick, but but or I, uh, Inuritu, or Inuritu. Yeah, yeah. Or, again, like, again, it's not you're you're saying it like we haven't you know yeah. criticized those guys' films either. You know, um, but well, it's uh, weird, like well, Jeff, like we we had a big argument when we were discussing The Counselor, and I feel like that's that, a big problem with that movie is how it was on the nose about everything it was saying to you. But it, you know, that movie worked for you on a different level. And I yeah. think like this, like the the very like exploitative, the very like visceral way it portrays the ending, you know, that does. I know for me that was interesting imagery. That was a really fascinating way of showing how like, oh, they want to be you, literally be <laughs> you. And there's it's one thing to just say it, you know, and just to have idle conversation about. It. There's another to just like show it in the most like in the most graphic way possible and we didn't even see the, the like them consuming her yeah we just see like the aftermath and uh, yeah i think that's all kind of it, it's a really well done way of exploring that notion what's interesting is a couple things about that is like one i mean consuming people in like a thematic metaphorical yeah. sense i mean that's that's been around for like f- forever like ancient civilizations forever i mean um you get their power yeah, yeah, you get their power. And so it's also a, somewhat inspired by Countess Elizabeth Bathory, uh, which was like a crazy story that I think is even crazier than some of the legends about it. But um, 
you know, she would bathe in the blood of virgins to stay young. I mean, it's it's the same no, thing. No, I'm aware of that. And, and, yeah. and again, again, I'm not trying to say that I have some insight into this just because I, I, I was making a, a comparison to st- student uh, – self-indulgence that's that's all i was doing yeah but the 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 the, the more salient point that i want to make is there is a truly shocking interesting well-executed moment where uh l fanning gets cut with the the glass in the in the bathroom and then the woman reaches over and tries to suck her blood we're done we've we've achieved that metaphor you did it you we no, got it. that that is just setting up but like we yeah, get it i, I think it, to Brit, redundant to brit's point though i think that if you read this movie as intentionally over the top it yeah. does work uh on, on a much better level than if you try That's to read it as straight up and i think like the the where i kind of started to perceive that maybe that was his uh what his point was was the scene when both um Jesse and uh, what's her name, uh, Abby Lee's character, uh, Sarah, are doing the walk in front of that fashion guy, yeah. and you know, like when Abby Lee does the walk, like he's not even paying attention, and but then when Al Fanning does the walk, he's like, oh my god, oh you know, he's like, god. where is the my fainting couch? Um, and uh, <laughs> I was just like, that is so, it, it is ridiculous the way it is yeah. played, and if it's intentionally ridiculous, then. I could see this film really working, but I think the incredibly dark tone uh, of the rest of the film feels to me like maybe it's not uh, intentionally over the top. But I don't know, Britt. What do you like? It, it sounds together, like you yeah. sounds like you think it's like supposed to be showgirls esque. Oh no! I mean, it it is. Like I think mm-hmm. that there are a lot of things in it that are meant to be over the top because I mean, when you think about it, what's subtle about the world of fashion? Right. What's subtle about Hollywood? Nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like a garish. Um, like sensory overload type of place. I mean, like everything is turned up to 11. I mean, you can say that the movie is self-indulgent, but I think it's just indulging something that's already indulgent. I'm in some respects, I don't even think he went far enough. I, <laughs> well, I, I don't think you're, I, I think you're absolutely right about that, but I think that maybe what I'm missing there is insight. It's not insightful. It's, it's right. obvious. And, and that's, and that's to me, Hmm. What? It's more observant than it is insightful. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. I would say that. Like, I want the movie to be deeper as well, because none of the, like, major proclamations it's saying, other than that, you know, bathroom scene of, you know, you judge people based on, like, who they may be fucking. Uh, it doesn't feel like it's a particularly insightful movie. But, yeah, in terms of, like, yeah, how you are looking at this world, it is introducing all sorts of new things. Right. Uh, Br- Br- mm-hmm. Let me ask you a question. Um, what What are your thoughts on the necrophilia scene with John Malone's <laughs> character? Like, how how do you interpret that as relating to the broader themes of the film? I mean, there's I, you could take it very obviously, and I think that's maybe the one scene that kind of never really that I never really figured out. You know, I was like, <laughs> it looks cool. Um, Does it? It's shocking. I mean, well, my definition of cool could be very different, but uh, you know, it's kind of like provocative. I mean, like, when's the last time exactly. you saw necrophilia on screen? I mean, even to that extent, like, when's the last time you saw another woman try to, or a woman try to sexually assault another woman on screen? Mm-hmm. Besides, like, a prison movie. Like, when's the last time that happened? So, um. I think it's really just trying to push your buttons at that point. But I also think you can draw like a very simple analogy of like, you know, she's like imagining Jesse and Jesse has this like, as a model has this like dead quality to her where she's cold and removed and, you know, 
not really alive. Like she's not really there. She's an idea of right. like she's yeah. not. So I think it's uh, that, and it's also like you know I'm lonely. Here's a naked corpse that kind of I guess vaguely resembles her if I squint my eyes just right. And yeah, I mean, also clearly she's she's got some issues. So I guess I'm not that surprised, but. What was the moment the moment after that where she's laying naked on the floor of the house and then oh, after she eats ex- Jesse and there's like flu- fluid coming out right the blood yeah, yeah it's, it's it's like blood it's, it's a birthing it scene yeah basically yeah, it's, it's it's sort of like birthing and it's sort of uh, like a rebirth thing and mm-hmm. it's also with like the moon it's very like Wiccan kind of thing <laughs> going on uh, but also I we're meant to understand that she she doesn't live that like. Uh, yeah you know, like Bella Heathcote's character, she's not strong enough to sustain that power. It's really like only the, Oh, she's not beautiful enough to have that beauty inside her. Well, no, it's not beauty. It's she's not hungry enough. And so that's the thing that I was going to say a little while ago too, is like, we don't see them eat her, but we also never see anyone eat anything in this movie, except for the fashion designer eats a single berry off the table in the restaurant. Like mm-hmm. nobody, and then like the very end with the eyeball, but like nobody ever eats anything. And I think like, if you're looking for some restraint in this movie, this is a movie <laughs> about models. Uh, the easy joke is like, they don't eat and like right. they make themselves barf. And instead they just, well, like, they ex- they're explicit about that too. There's that scene in the restaurant where she's like, you're not going to eat that. Why are you even ordering it? Well, it's nice to hear that she memorized the words. <laughs> right? It's so funny. Uh, and I don't think, I mean, if you're making a satirical film, I don't think you need to be insightful. The point of satire is to be, like, keenly observant. So right. in that respect, I think he really succeeds. But I just, uh, it, the thing with Jenna Malone, I don't know, she's one of the more, like, enigmatic parts of the film to me. Uh, there's really this masculine energy about her, like, when she's mm-hmm. walking around after they eat her and she's, like, topless. with just Watering like, the plants, hand. yeah. Yeah. And it's very, it's, there's nothing sexual about it. It's very, like, just like a guy hanging out, taking care of his yard. Like, it's. <laughs> yeah. What's fascinating to me is that they showed, they definitely show the necrophilia scene, like, you know, graphically. And yeah, we don't see them eating her. And it also, like, in terms of, like, how Neffin is trying to provoke us, or, um, it's interesting that you know, we we can't get provoked by people eating each other because The Walking Dead is the most popular show on television. Everybody sees that every week, you know. So where does he have to go to show us some new imagery? It's uh, people fucking corpses. Wow. <laughs> I I would love to um, talk a little bit about the the have his cake and eat it too comment that you bristled at uh, because um, you know early on in the movie we see El Fanning. Uh, in a photo shoot, she's asked to take off her clothes, and the camera pushes into her head. And I thought, oh, okay, awesome. You know, we're not we're not going there. It's about it's about her feelings in this moment and what's happening. It's not about us as the audience being titillated. I actually really respect that. I think it's good. Um, and then at the end, we have this lingering shot of the women, sort of. Oh boy. What? I'm so glad we're going to mm-hmm. talk. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to know. I want to know how you feel about that and why that doesn't feel exploitive. Are you talking about the lingering shot of the woman showering um, in blood? Yes, in blood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I, I just had a very lengthy argument with a male friend about this last week <laughs> um, because he had seen the movie a couple months ago and he 
he told me his first response was like, I think it's really sexist and gross. And I thought that was weird because he loves Ruffin. And I was like, wait, why? And he was like, we'll talk when you see it. So when he saw it, I texted him. I was like, okay, so what was so sexist about that? And he goes, the shower scene. And I was like, really? The shower scene? <laughs> that? Like that? Like it wasn't Keanu Reeves holding a knife in her throat and a dream yeah. sequence. It no, wasn't too. Like, listening yeah. to a possible rape next door. It wasn't any of the other things that I think you could make a cogent argument about in you know, I mean, I wouldn't agree with it, but you could make a better argument for this. Uh, but it was no, it was the shower seat. It was two women taking a shower, and the only thing really sexual about it is the way that the camera lingers, I guess, mm-hmm. and the fact that it's two women because that immediately makes everyone think of porn um, and some like fantasy that everyone harbors. And uh, I don't understand. You say that not- in a tone. You say that in a tone that's dismissive. You say like. Well, the only thing sexual about it is how it's completely sexualized. <laughs> well, it does, it does feel kind of asexual in a way too, right? It no. is what you're looking at. It, it is definitely shot like it is trying to be like a, a model sheet or pornography, but at the same time, they are like reveling in a kill. So what, like, almost what's most sexual is like the way it like it shows them empowered in a way. What's fascinating to me is that the movie doesn't have that much nudity and like doesn't really linger on a lot of that until that particular scene right like there the scene where um jesse is forced to like take off her clothes and the guy paints her and everything we don't see like her nudity we see her reacting to it but that's all hidden that shower scene yeah it is definitely a little pornographic but i I think more pornographic because of the blood more than i think it's i think it's another example of how the last 10 minutes of this movie completely betrays the first (laughs) 90 percent of it and and i think i think it is and I, I we can have a difference of opinion on this, but mm-hmm. I, ju- I just I I think that what the movie is trying to do for ninety percent of it, mm-hmm. and then this this ending that comes completely out of left field <laughs> for me, and and then revels in the thing that it seems to be it seems to be warning us about. Like I I, I don't understand what yeah, I, I didn't get like a moral message from this movie. It, well, it's, I don't it's, mean it's, it's it is message. summing up the themes of the movie in very explicit (laughs) ways but all like everything that happens in that last sequence the groundwork was laid you know it may be shocking it may like turn up the volume to a completely different level but i do feel a lot of it is justified right is there a is is the movie a cautionary tale like does it have a (laughs) does it have a moral message Britt? what do you think well no i mean like you know reference not your mom so I mean, like, I, I, that's I like think Devendra like, oh, just, just bastardized my argument and turned it into that question, <laughs> which I didn't intend it to be. But go ahead. Yeah. You know, like, uh, does does Melancholia have a moral message? No. I mean, like, <laughs> I don't think every movie needs to. But I, you know, not to be dismissive of you, I just think it's kind of funny. It's like, it it is about our complex relationship with these things. And if you look at fashion and Hollywood and all of these things, we long for them we covet them we think that they're gorgeous but we also know how disgusting and terrible they are i mean it's both it is both (laughs) things and that scene in the shower is those two it's kind of silly honestly because what it is is it's like pointing out how ridiculous it is that these people will sexualize anything (laughs) anything i mean it's almost like i heart huckabee so will this filmmaker (laughs) i mean i don't know i don't know but i don't think i mean like when a character does something in a movie, is that representative of a filmmaker's opinion? No. But, I mean, just because he filmed that scene, that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that he's, like, lecherous. It doesn't mean that anything. I mean, he's like, oh, oh, you know, look, like, 
we're sexualizing death too. And we're like cannibalizing this person, which is like, you know, you could extrapolate that metaphor in like five different ways. And, um, on top of all of that though, it just fucking looks cool. Like, can't it just look cool? It's the, it looks cool the way that like Jess Franco lesbian vampires look cool or like, mm-hmm. It's cool in the way that, like, Isabella Johnny screaming in a subway in possession with, like, fluids coming out of her body looks cool. It's like um, – I, I, And I argue that is exactly the problem. Right, right, I, right. I argue that's that's what's wrong with that scene is that it looks cool. And I think that's what's wrong with the entire last ten minutes of this movie is you've, you've, you've created something that I think is overlong and plotting and – lugubrious and has a lot of problems but at least i would it was interesting and it was thought-provoking and and now at the end we're in we're in silliness and you've undermined it for me you undermined everything that you accomplished in the first 90 percent of your movie by going into this place of mocking the thing you made I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just, just differ on that, I guess. Yeah, it it just yeah, it doesn't feel as silly compared to like there are so many other silly things in this movie. Like it, there is a level, and to me, it just gets amped up by that end point. And Refn, right? He is a uh, he's a fetishistic filmmaker. Like he loves mm-hmm. the images. He loves lingering on them and framing them and doing all sorts of things. So yeah, will you give him a shower scene with two naked women uh, covered in blood? Like that uh, that is how I'd expect he would handle it. Just like you know. Um, the scenes of Jesse and all her various like makeup forms and her posing and everything too. Like that's he, he definitely uses cinema as like a fetish object sometimes. I didn't really feel like there was personally anything sexual Mm -hmm. about that scene. I felt like, you know, they're not, you know, they're not like groping each other and like, you know, sticking their tongues in each other's mouths. They're like taking a shower and it's kind of silly (laughs) because like they're in this like girl's blood and it lingers. I think, partially to show all the glitter that's in the blood right which i think yeah. is interesting i gotta uh, tell you i don't i'm not trying to mansplain <laughs> this but from a that is that is a sexual scene i mean i, mean, I don't yeah, know because you're a straight i presume right. man <laughs> yes um and so this is kind of the argument i had with my friend was just like he kept telling me that i should be offended by it and i'm like um when did you get a vagina <laughs> I'm not saying I was offended by it. I, I, I wasn't offended by it. I, yeah. I just thought it completely undermined the entire movie. And all no, of a sudden, that's fair. Now, I get it. Yeah, but also, it's like, what do you expect from a movie where Keanu Reeves says some real Lolita shit? <laughs> I mean, come on! Like, what movie are you watching? I Would think they hired Keanu- him just for that line, too, right? Yeah. So yeah. basically, what you're saying throughout this Brit is, is <laughs> I should just man up and stop being such a pussy. <laughs> no, uh, no, not at all. But uh, it's just it is kind of funny to me that's just like you know mm-hmm. at what point is it not allowed to be silly? And I, maybe some of it's lost in translation too. Like Danish sense of humor is very dark and way different from our own. <laughs> Were you like um, the one person in the theater that was like laughing during the shower scene? Oh Brit, my god! In the theater? The, no, during- everyone was laughing. Yeah. <laughs> During the press screening, I was like, it was like me and like, I don't know, you know, Peter Hall. We were like the only ones laughing during that like third act. <laughs> we thought it was so great. We were like, oh my God, this is totally insane. I mean, and I was the only one laughing like during like Keanu's lines, which are really good. Um, and a lot of the stuff that the girls are like when they're being catty and stuff, like it's meant to be very over the top and it is funny. Like, and I was. <laughs> I felt very alone, like laughing at it. I no, was yeah, like, I will say, like from a sense of humor perspective, our audience, quote unquote, got it. Like we all yeah. really enjoyed I heard it. Your from, parents are dead. 
That's a great <laughs> yeah. opener. Yeah, exactly. Like it was quite like the the humor uh, translated really well until that last ten minutes when I think people <laughs> were just like, "What is happening?" There was a um, lot of chuckles in my audience, and uh, honestly, guys, like I love being in an audience, like seeing insanity like that with yeah. a group of people, it is and be like, "How are we processing this?" As a like, we're in this together, you know, audience. Uh, how are how are we handling this? And I, I you know, I love that experience. Britt Hayes, as usual, you have uh, you know provoked a lot of thinking around this film. I'm really grateful for you being here. I'll give you the last word on Neon Demon. Uh, why should people see this movie, in your opinion? I, I mean, I think it's beautiful for one. I mean, if nothing else, even if you come out of it not appreciating or respecting its themes or understanding exactly what the hell he's doing, it's gorgeous. And this Cliff Martinez's score, I yeah, I really think is his so best good, to good. date. But um, I think there is a chance that you could walk into this movie and find something more than just uh, blood and glitter and, and, and cannibalism. You could find um, that he took something that's very familiar about the beauty industry and the way that it turns women on each other and trains them to fight against each other like dogs. And he found a different way to say that and a, an interesting way to say that. It's something you've heard a lot before, but it's you haven't seen it done this way. Well, again, thanks so much for joining us today, Britt. Uh, you can find more episodes of this podcast at uh, SlashFilmCast.com. Email us. Let us know what you thought of The Neon Demon at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. Uh, in the meantime, where can people find more of your work on the Internet? Britt Hayes. Um, you can find me at ScreenCrush.com, where I am the associate editor, and we've been uh, cooking up a whole bunch of really great new original content. So, um that is where you can find me. And also your review of Neon Demon is there as well, right? Yes, my review of Neon Demon is there. Um, you could also find me on Twitter uh, at Miss Britt Hayes. Cool. We'll link to your uh, review in the show notes. Jeff Kanata, where can people find more of your work on the internet? you got to come by more often. This is awesome having yes. you. You're, uh, <laughs> anytime, so anytime. Honestly. Yeah. Um, you can find me at Jeff Kanata on Twitter. Uh, I have several other shows, including a video game show called DLC. You can find that at 5x5.tv slash DLC. I do a comedy science show called We Have Concerns. You can find that at wehaveconcerns.com. And I have a technology video show on CNET called Tomorrow Daily. You can find that at tomorrowdaily.com. How about you, Devendra? Oh, I'm at Devendra on Twitter, and I write about techandgadget.com. Check out my video interview with uh, Alex Gibney on Monday. Find all my stuff at DaveChen.me. Find my film, The Primary Instinct, on Hulu.com and at ThePrimaryInstinct.com as well. Next week, we'll be reviewing Ghostbusters. Uh, so I'm sure that review will not be as contentious <laughs> as this one. Um, but uh, yeah, tune in to the Slash Filmcast next week, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. We're out. All right, welcome to the Slash Filmcast After Dark. Just a few things wanted to mention. Uh, we're going to spoil Swiss Army Man. Uh, and so if you haven't seen Swiss Army Man, don't want to be spoiled on it. I uh, just wanted to read some of the emails we got about Swiss Army Man, which I thought were really great. Also, this, just really quick, if you haven't seen Swiss Army Man and you think you might, it's worth not getting spoiled about yeah, yeah, it. It's, it's really, really can be spoiled and it shouldn't be spoiled. Uh, Marlon writes in from Salisbury, Maryland. Marlon writes... 
when Dave Chen was running through Devin Faraci's myriad of interpretations for Swiss Army Man, the one interpretation that wasn't mentioned was that this movie could also be a gay love story. Jeff was hmm. talking about the so-called juvenile philosophy of the film, but my thought was that, as juvenile as it was, it was all subtext for a man discovering his love for another man. Jeff mentioned being nervous about talking to girls as a youth, but then growing out of it. One doesn't grow out of it if one is gay. And by the end of this film, Paul Dano's character never is able to talk to the girl in question. He instead rides Daniel Radcliffe's ass over the cliff and towards a watery sunset. Yes, his aim for the most part is chasing after a girl on a train, a female picture on his phone. But as a young boy, too, uh, but as a young boy, I, too, had confusing feelings for girls, thinking girls were what I wanted. I never stalked anyone, but my curiosity did at times possibly get weird before I realized what I truly wanted. Yet all of it also doesn't discount the fact that Dano's character could be bisexual there's a scene where dano dresses in drag and another scene where he has a same-sex kiss all obvious queer imagery and as juvenile as it sounds the constant farting and radcliffe's childlike question of why we can't fart around each other feeds into issues regarding anal sex the details of which i won't go into but just know that as a gay man there are certain things you have to accept or get over if hooking up with men anally is your jam having father issues wanting acceptance from your main masculine role model is also a theme in gay films as well really this movie to me is just one big coming out metaphor for Dano's character. The email comes in from Mar- Marlon from Salisbury, Maryland. Thanks, Marlon. What a thoughtful email. Awesome and yeah, email. Um, I did not... Uh, th- I guess it was kind of that. there. You know, it's kind of there. Like, it's, it's fairly well, obvious, but we didn't yeah, mention when, it really in, the, in our review of it. We should have. I definitely got those themes too as I was watching it, and especially the, how much of a moment that first kiss is between the two male leads in the movie uh it it really is pays off like the kiss in any romantic comedy would it it, you know we get that moment where it almost happens and then it doesn't and then when it finally does it's this orgiastic you know it's it's beautiful and and you know celebratory and and, yes it's an an amazing moment yeah yeah, and, and I think uh, it certainly feels like the love that he discovers is, uh, you know, uh, homosocial, if not homoerotic. You know, it, it is love of another man that, that is his salvation. And uh, in that sense, I think it, it can't be ignored. It is certainly a part of the movie, and I think a really cool interpretation of the movie. Right. Um, and kind of, like, if the whole movie is just symbolic in that way kind of makes the movie uh, sort of easier to uh, take in, in in some ways because the movie is so out there. You know, that right. if it's just a metaphor, then I think it totally works on that level. Um, if it's kind of a more realistic story about this guy befriending a decomposing corpse, as we pointed out last week, there are a lot of problems with trying to view it as more grounded in reality, namely that the corpse would have been <laughs> completely disgusting by the end. Um, yep. Dalen W. writes in, great episode on Swiss Army Man, guys. On the ending, though, isn't it more feasible that the final scene where Manny jet skis away never actually happens except in Hank's head? It it, it far better explains the fact that all the people on the beach with Dano's character are enthralled by what's unfolding. The one word I never heard any of you mention was mental illness. That's what the film (laughs) is ultimately about. Dano is mentally insane. It explains his entire outlook on life, which, despite being beautiful, poetic, and emotional, is also disturbing, depressing, and strange. He broke years ago, left his dad, ran away to live behind the house of a girl he became obsessed with on lonely bus trips. He has a pure, beautiful, almost childlike view of love, 
which ultimately turns dark and disturbing. And honestly, isn't that what makes love's influence over most of us so strange and difficult to explain? People kill each other for love. How is that any stranger than anything Dano's character does in this film? The fact that this mentally unstable person may actually have the best understanding of love is probably what made this film most interesting in my mind. His dad's and the other onlookers' expressions at the end were actually the most poignant of the entire film. In them, you saw Dano finally fully breaking. Finally, the way he saw the world was the way they saw the world, and it was beautiful. He wasn't crazy. The girl he thought he could make love him, of course, didn't agree. Her response reflects the fact that he accepts that she just can't see the truth, end quote. I think that's a little bit more of a stretch than Marlon's email, but uh, I, I do appreciate that, yeah, Paul Dano's actions would be considered uh, those of a mentally ill person in our, you know, in our universe, right? Well, you could say that about almost every movie that's made. Almost <laughs> every movie, the main character could be a mentally ill person because their version of the world is often out of step with everyone else in their own movie. Um, but I do think that something you actually brought up during our review of Swiss Army Man was that I think it speaks well of the film that you can extract so many different interpretations. That it, it really is... You know, as we've seen from these last two emails, there are so many different ways to take something interesting away from this particular film, and I think that is a quality that should be lauded. It's 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 high art. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. And yeah, I mean, so many interpretations, even on our podcast, in the emails coming in, uh, great film, and uh, uh, yeah, keep those interpretations coming into slash filmcast at gmail dot com. I also really like that Dalen pointed out that. Uh, love should be considered a sort of mental, mental illness, illness in many ways because it makes us do crazy shit that yeah. uh, otherwise would be considered completely inexcusable. And no kidding. I think you see that a lot in, in this film, Swiss Army Man, as well. You know, the idea that the love between these two men kind of binds them together and allows uh, them to interact in such a way that would be inconceivable given that one of them is a corpse. Well, also, so, I think it, not only that, but it's the lack of love that is the inciting incident, right? It's right. it's the fact that Paul Dano's character can't have love and feels love loveless, even from a familial standpoint. Like his dad won't love him is right. a big part. So it's that it's that need for love that we all have as human beings that leads him to do these outlandish things. Totally. Well, Jeff Kanata, thanks for sticking around with me on this After Dark. And thank you all, listeners, for uh, engaging with our review and writing into slash filmcast.gmail.com. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it was weird that Devinder didn't have anything positive to say about this. But, you know, I guess he just (laughs) wants to be quiet right now. Uh, No, I think uh, (laughs) Devinder had to go. That's why he's not here. uh, All right. Well, thanks, guys. And we'll see you next week.